Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for anyone who loves cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at pub quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Some, just some energy for this Tuesday yeah, morning. Just energy, you know? energy, power, power and energy. Um, last week we had a, another guest. We had, and it really like brought me back to some. I literally like I closed my my like mm-hmm. Skype mm-hmm. after we got off that, and then I opened up YouTube <laughs> and I watched that Lady Gaga music video again because Bad Romance <laughs> is such a good music video. I yeah, it was a lot of fun going through going through all of that, and yeah, yeah. it'll be interesting to see where YouTube goes in the future, I suppose. (laughs) Mm, I fear it too. I also fear it. Yes. So, uh, so much like, uh, the, the last episode that you helmed where you said, this is the opposite of the previous episode. (laughs) I am certainly doing what you could call the opposite of YouTube. So (laughs) decided to go back to my roots Oh, I mean, it's classic, American right? it's history. To, yes, and there we go. It's time, guys. We are going to cover a lot of revolts in early American history in this episode entitled With a Rebel Yell. Yes, yes, yes. So I have I'm not cover dealt with this in a long time. Five episodes in U.S. history, what they are briefly, what they were about, how long they lasted, what their impacts were. So Fantastic. These are, I'm excited. These are things that, you know, they're they're a named event of some sort and you should be able to recall these. So right. starting with the earliest is Shays Rebellion. So that's S H A Y S apostrophe Shays Rebellion. Uh, this was August 1786 to June 1787. Um, it was essentially an armed uprising in Western Massachusetts that was in opposition to high taxes and stringent economic conditions. So it's named after Daniel Shays. His name was his last name is Shays S H A Y S, which is why it would not be S H A Y apostrophe S rebellion. Sure, okay, yes. gotcha. Mm-hmm. Anyway, his mm-hmm. name is Daniel Shays. He was born around 1747 in Massachusetts. His parents were of Irish, you know, Irish uh, ethnicity. Um, uh, in Massachusetts? Yeah, surprise. That sound right. <laughs> so Shays served the colonies during the American Revolution. He responded to the call at arms at Lexington. He served as the second lieutenant in a Massachusetts regiment, and he became captain of the 5th Massachusetts Regiment in 1777. He took part in the Battle of Bunker Hill, Ticonderoga, and Saratoga. Those are like some big battles from the Revolutionary yeah, yeah. War. I know we haven't done a Revolutionary War episode, but... You know, there's some things you should know. Anyway. Yeah. In 1780, he resigned from the army and he settled in Pelham, Massachusetts, where he held several town offices. So basically, prosperity kind of reigned in America after the signing of peace in 1783. Mm-hmm. Um, but an economic depression soon occurred. So property holders, including Shays, began losing their possessions through seizures for overdue debts and delinquent taxes, and they became subject to debtors imprisonment. So Mm. a lot of demonstrations ensued. There were threats of violence against the courts that were handling these enforcements and indictments. And Shays emerged as one of several leaders of what by chance came to be called Shays Rebellion. So 
In September 1786, Shays and other local leaders led several hundred men enforcing the Supreme Court in Springfield to adjourn. Shays led a force of about 1,200 men in an attack on the federal arsenal at Springfield and pursued by the militia. On February 4th, he was decisively defeated at Petersham and fled to Vermont. 4,000 people signed confessions acknowledging participation in the events of the rebellion in exchange for amnesty. Like, Mm. okay, sure. Um, (laughs) Several hundred participants were eventually indicted on charges relating to the rebellion, but most of them were pardoned under a general amnesty that included only a few ringleaders. 18 men were convicted and sentenced to death, but most of them had their sentence commuted or overturned on appeal or were pardoned. Shays was actually pardoned in 1788, and he returned to Massachusetts from hiding in the Vermont woods. As a result of the rebellion, the Massachusetts legislature enacted laws that were easing the economic condition of debtors. And though this was technically pretty small in scale, it was easily repressed. Shays' actions became, for some, a persuasive argument for a stronger and conservative national government. So Mm. the widely held view was that the Articles of Confederation, which preceded the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, Mm -hmm. that they needed to be reformed as the country's governing document and that the events of the rebellion served as a catalyst for the Constitutional Convention in the creation of the new government. So it was basically like they were sick of these high taxes and like getting their stuff seized by the courts and they led kind of uh, a march with Mm -hmm. weapons. And yeah, yeah, you know, they went to the arsenal and all this stuff. So they were were shut down um, and it was, you know, it was a pretty brief thing. It was less than a year of like the total rebellion, but it did have an impact on creating the... uh, constitution yeah and that is why to this day we call it taxachusetts oh great one lauren (laughs) our second event they they have very high taxes our second event (laughs) is the whiskey rebellion Mm, so this was a violent tax protest primarily in western pennsylvania (gasps) beginning in 1791 so The new U.S. federal government began operating in 1789 after they ratified the Constitution. And previously, under the Articles of Confederation, that central government had been unable to levy taxes. So they were basically borrowing money to meet expenses and to fund the Revolutionary War. Um, They ended up accumulating about $54 million in debt at that time, along with more than $25 million of debt in the state governments. So Secretary of the Treasury... Alexander Hamilton, you might have heard of him. Oh, uh, hey, I know that guy. You know that guy. Uh, he urged Congress to consolidate the state and national debts into a single debt that would be funded by the federal government. Mm. So a source of government revenue was needed to pay the respectable amount due to the previous bondholders to whom the debt was owed. And Hamilton believed that import duties had already been raised as high as they could go. So he promoted passing an excise tax on domestically produced distilled spirits. And he believed this was a luxury tax and would be the least objectionable that their government could levy. And this Hmm. is actually the whiskey, this, what they're, you know, what came to be known as the whiskey tax. This was actually the first tax levied by the national government on a domestic product. Oh, wow. So this whiskey tax became law in 1791. It actually applied to all distilled spirits but since consumption of american whiskey was rapidly expanding in the late 18th century it basically became known as the whiskey tax yeah so you know who wasn't happy about this farmers 
especially farmers living west of the Appalachian Mountains. So they would often distill their excess grain into whiskey, which was easier and more profitable to transport over mountains. Um, This whiskey tax would actually make Western farmers less competitive with Eastern grain producers. And additionally, since cash was like physical cash was often in really short supply on the frontier, which at that time Mm. was like Pennsylvania, Ohio. (laughs) Um, So whiskey actually often served as a medium of exchange. So for poorer people who were paid in whiskey, this excise was essentially an income tax that wealthier Easterners did not have to pay. Interesting. The other thing was that small scale farmers also protested that Hamilton's excise tax effectively gave unfair tax breaks to larger distillers, a lot of whom were based in the East. So there were two methods of paying this tax. You could either pay a flat fee or you could pay by the gallon. So Mm. large distillers produced whiskey in volume and they could actually afford that flat fee. The more efficient they became, the less tax per gallon they actually had to pay. Meanwhile, Western farmers who owned small stills did not usually operate them year-round at full capacity so they would end up paying a higher tax per gallon which made them less competitive yeah also the law required that all stills needed to be registered and those cited for failure to pay the tax had to appear in federal court and the only federal courthouse was in philadelphia which was about 300 miles away from the frontier settlement of pittsburgh thus proving that people from pittsburgh have always hated philadelphia (laughs) for more than 200 years now anyway can i tell you I I have I have almost no opinion about Philadelphia. I really don't. I haven't spent a lot of time down there. It's fine, I guess. I don't care to be there again. But you know, whatever. It's seat of, you know, our American whatever. But to I continuously refer to it as Philadelphia because of <laughs> Well, so you influence We me, tell so the you, truth here on misinformation. Uh, yep, we're bold. We're bold talkers who don't care what people think you know especially not philadelphians (laughs) oh lord back to this whiskey tax so a lot of the resistors of paying this tax were war veterans who believed that they were fighting for the principles of the american revolution particularly against taxation without local representation Mm -hmm. while the federal government maintained that taxes were the legal expression of congressional taxation So throughout Western Pennsylvania counties, these protesters end up using violence and intimidation to prevent federal (laughs) officials from collecting the tax. Um, One tax collector named Robert Johnson was actually tarred and feathered in 1791. Love that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, That's terrible. But yeah, you didn't like think people actually did this stuff. But yes, it's on record that one tax collector was like, hello, I'm here to get your whiskey tax. And they were like... (laughs) <laughs> no, no, sir. We're going to dip you in a bucket of tar and cover you in feathers. So painful. I mean, aside from that, they had organized <laughs> meetings and conventions and petitions, sure. but they really failed to cause any changes. So resistance actually came to its climax in July 1794. A U.S. marshal arrived in Western Pennsylvania to serve subpoenas to more than 60 distillers who hadn't paid their excise tax. The alarm was raised and more than 500 armed men attacked the fortified home of tax inspector General John Neville, and they burned it to the ground. <gasps> um, then... Then, okay, President George mm-hmm. Washington was like, you guys, come on. So he responded by sending peace commissioners to Western Pennsylvania to negotiate with the rebels, while at the same time calling on governors to send a militia force to enforce that tax. And George oh Washington himself rode at the head of an army to suppress the insurgency with 13,000 militiamen provided by the governors of Virginia, Maryland, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Um, so the rebels were like, 
oh shit. So they all went home. The president <laughs> the is army coming. army arrived. And yeah. there was actually like no confrontation or battle. But about 20 men were arrested, but all were later acquitted or pardoned. So though like large scale violence was averted for the most part, the Whiskey Rebellion showed that the people of the new government had the means and the will to suppress the resistance to laws that it made. And violent opposition to the whiskey excise tax ended after Washington's militia expedition. But political opposition continued in earnest and taxes they were still just as difficult to collect. So the events also contributed to the formation of political parties in the U.S. Oh. In fact, Thomas Jefferson was elected in 1800 in a large part due to opponents of internal taxes like the whiskey tax. And by 1802, Congress just decided to repeal the distilled spirits tax and all other internal taxes. Lauren, if you want to experience all the fun that the Whiskey Rebellion has to offer... You can travel to Washington, Pennsylvania during the second weekend in July each year. There is, of course, whiskey. There's a mercantile. There's a parade. And a slightly disturbing note on their website says, quote, all caps, yes, there will be a tar and feathering in 2022. (laughs) So (laughs) what? (laughs) I hope it's just a play or like. A paper mache guy. I hope they're not. No, it's they're not it's, really dipping someone in tars and feathers, right? <laughs> it's a lottery situation. You know it is. You it's know a, who would know this? Katie Sikelsky would know. Katie Sikelsky oh, would yeah. know this. Katie, hit Katie, us up. Let us know about the uh, the Whiskey Rebellion Festival in Washington, PA. Wouldn't that be so funny? You and I drive down there. We're like, woohoo! We're gonna go to the Whiskey Rebellion, and then they're like, "Here's your piece of paper." <laughs> we all open it at the same time. Hope it's not you this year. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yep. y'all! That's a callback to the Shirley Jackson episode. So good. All right, third rebellion. Mm-hmm. Fries's rebellion. F R I E S apostrophe S. Okay, Fries's that- rebellion. Look, I look. I'm all about. The I, spells, I know you're right? doing it. You're not doing it. <laughs> so just when we thought the Pennsylvanians were under control. In 1799, we get the Fries's Rebellion, which is also called the House Tax Rebellion. Mm. So when the U.S. and France were kind of thinking about going into another war in 1798, they they were like flirting with it. um, (laughs) Congress raised a large army and enlarged the Navy. So they actually, um, this is also known as the Quasi-War. It was an undeclared naval war fought from 1798 to 1800 between the U.S. and the French First Republic, primarily in the Caribbean and off the U.S. East Coast. Okay. So to pay for this war, in July 1798, Congress imposed $2 million in new taxes on real estate and enslaved persons, apportioned Uh among the states according to the requirements of the Constitution. And it was the first and only such federal tax like this. So the tax was accordingly assessed upon dwelling houses and land, the value of the houses being determined by the number and size of the windows. So... The inquisitorial oh, nature. Yeah, right? So like you'll you'll sometimes hear about like old houses didn't have a lot of windows or they didn't have any closets or that kind yeah. of thing. And, you know, to kind of get around tax code, which is bizarre. It sounds yeah. bizarre to us these days. But sure. Basically, this inquisitorial nature of the proceedings with assessors riding around and counting windows of houses aroused strong opposition and many refused to pay, making the constitutional Mm -hmm. argument that this tax was not being levied in proportion to population. So Pennsylvania auctioneer John Fry's organized meetings starting in February 1799 to discuss a collective response to this tax. Fry's was well acquainted with the German-Americans issues in the southeastern part of Pennsylvania and many advocated resistance in 
response to the tax. In Milford Township, particularly, assessors were unsuccessful in completing their assessments due to intimidation. Um, <laughs> so at a meeting called by government representatives in an attempt to explain the tax as a way to diffuse tensions, protesters waved liberty flags. Some were armed and in Continental Army uniforms. They were shouting them Yikes. down and they turned the meeting into a protest rally. In early March 1799, a local militia company and a growing force of armed irregulars met, marching to the accompaniment of a drum and fife. About a hundred of them set off for Quakertown in pursuit of the tax assessors, whom they intended to place under arrest. And they oh, captured no. a number of them there, releasing them with a warning not to return and to tell the government what had happened to them. So opposition oh to this tax spread to other parts of Pennsylvania. Federal warrants were issued. The U.S. Marshal began arresting people for tax resistance. Um, oh 30 God. men went on trial in federal court and Fries and two others were tried for treason and with Federalists stirring up a frenzy were sentenced to be hanged. Um, oh my God. But President John Adams pardoned Fries and the others convicted of treason. He was prompted by the narrower constitutional definition of treason and he later added that the rebels were quote obscure miserable Germans as ignorant <laughs> of our language as they were of our laws and were only being used by quote great men in the opposition party. And John wow. Adams issued a general amnesty for everyone involved in May 1800. So our first like big three rebellions in the U.S. were all tax related. Yeah, I mean, people don't like to part with their money, they especially don't. when they find that it's unfair. They don't. So yeah, that yeah. was Shays's the Whiskey Rebellion and Fries's Rebellion. Mm-hmm, the Fries mm-hmm. one was much smaller than the other two, but still, yeah. it's it's counted significant in with um, these early ones. All right, the next one you've probably heard of. But you probably don't know the whole story behind it. So this one is um, called Nat Turner's Rebellion. Yes. It's also Mm -hmm. called the Southampton Insurrection. Um, Mm. So this was August 21st to the 23rd of 1831. Uh, This was a rebellion of enslaved Virginians that took place in Southampton County, Virginia in August of that year. So Nat Turner was born into slavery in October 1800 in Southampton County, Virginia. For most of his life, he was simply known as Nat, but he was enslaved by the Turner family. So later in life, he was actually referred to as Nat Turner. Mm. Um, So Nat learned how to read and write at a young age. He grew up deeply religious. Uh, He left behind no diary, no family Bible, no firsthand Mm. account of any kind. So basically all of his words and actions come to us filtered through other white intermediaries, I have to say. Okay. So here's what we all think was going on around Mm -hmm. age 21 he escaped from his enslaver samuel turner but he returned a month later after he received a vision reportedly nat often conducted religious services preaching the bible to his fellow enslaved people and he was convinced that he was ordained for a great purpose Hmm. in february 1831 he witnessed a solar eclipse and he thought that it was the sign for which he was waiting he envisioned this as a black man's hand reaching over the sun and he began preparations for an uprising against enslavers in southampton county he originally Hmm. planned for the rebellion to take place on july 4th 1831 but he fell ill and he used this delay for additional planning not just i mean he just loved a sign in the sky um yeah on august 13th of that year the result of a volcanic plume off the coast of sicily caused the (gasps) sun above the east coast of the u.s to appear bluish green so nat also took this as a divine signal i mean anyone would let's be honest if i saw the right? sun was just blue green blue? for like no apparent yep. reason all I'd right probably something's think something gotta was happen on. now right yeah mm-hmm. 
So on August 21st, Nat and more than 70 enslaved and free blacks traveled from house to house in Southampton County, freeing enslaved people and killing many of the white enslavers that they encountered. Uh, The rebels used knives, hatchets, axes, and blunt instruments. Um, Things like muskets and firearms would have been too difficult to collect, and they would have also probably attracted unwanted attention. So the black rebels killed approximately 60 people. Um, including women and children, which is very sad to think about, um, before they were defeated by the state militia. Mm. Within a day of the suppression of the rebellion, the local militia and three companies of artillery were joined by detachments of men from the USS Natchez and the USS Warren, which were anchored in Norfolk, Virginia, which is real close by, and militias from other counties in Virginia and North Carolina that bordered Southampton. Uh, rumors quickly spread that this this revolt of enslaved people was not limited to Southampton and that it had, had spread as far south as Alabama. So oh, wow. basically, this didn't, no, this was not happening. This was like gossip, gossip, gossip. They were like, oh, oh. They, they were like, all of these, all of these enslaved people and free blacks are coming after us. So we need to do mm-hmm. something about it. So this was like really, they were getting whipped into a frenzy by like, I see, gossip. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, Nat Turner and, and the people he was working with, they, they were defeated by the state militia, but Nat Turner yeah. eluded capture for six weeks. He did remain in Southampton County, though. He didn't go far. He didn't leave. Yeah. He was actually discovered hidden among the local Nodaway people by a white farmer named Benjamin Phipps. And while awaiting trial, um, attorney Thomas R. Gray claimed that Nat confessed his knowledge of the rebellion and later published the Confessions of Nat Turner, which purports to be Turner's confession and account of his life leading up to the rebellion, as well as an account of his motives and actions during the rebellion. So there's a little, little bit of controversy around this. They're like, did he, you know, did this guy. Did he actually. He, yeah. Did he actually say any of this? Um, but Thomas R. Gray like profited off of this like right sure. away. Okay. Like he was like, yeah, yep, of course. Tell me more. And, you know, said, mm-hmm. said he wrote all this down and he got this published like again, like almost right away. Um, sure. I have to note also in 1967, William Styron also published a book called The Confessions of Nat Turner, which he presented as a fictionalized first person account of the revolt. And he won the Pulitzer Prize for that. And it was oh, also, wow, okay. that was also controversial because they're like, who is this white man to be telling this, you know, oh. this fictionalized story of somebody that is um, important to black history in America. Yeah, so essentially Nat Turner has had his 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 life kind of co-opted by a bunch of white men and who've made money off of it yep. and fame and power. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. So Nat was, you know, he was captured. He was tried in November 1831 for, quote, conspiring to rebel and making insurrection. And he was convicted and sentenced to death. He was hanged on November 11th, 1831 mm. in Jerusalem, Virginia. Um, so if you're squeamish, like cover your ears and go like la 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 for like 10 seconds. Okay. So okay. his body was beheaded, dissected and flayed. His skin was reportedly used to make souvenir purses. What? Oh my God. That's so inhumane. Um, his headless remains were possibly buried in an unmarked grave and his purported skull has been mentioned as being housed at the College of Worcester in Ohio, which has quoted, you know, apparently since been misplaced or sure. it might have been given to the former mayor of Gary, Indiana for a collection of what? a civil rights museum. Um, so the, the, 
So Gary Indiana was going to like, they were going to do it. They were going to make a civil rights museum. And then like the centerpiece of their collection was going to be the skull of Nat Turner. And then they didn't have, like they didn't, you know, something happened. They didn't have the resources for this. So they actually turned it over to the Smithsonian. And the Smithsonian has had it um, for placement, uh, for testing uh, in the last couple of years. So they haven't, they haven't, announced the conclusion of those tests yet but um but two of nat turner's descendants were actually ones that helped to get it placed at the smithsonian so they are aware of if it is this otherwise um there was also one that was housed at the college of wooster in ohio that um just like some historian had it and then the college like caught on fire and they, they you know there was something in the paper about them trying to save this you know the skull of nat turner was housed there but it has since been misplaced so maybe one of these is is, is that, the real deal yeah. I guess. so it's it's there's crazy to me like when you get when you get into like things that people did with bodies it's a fetishization of death that is um very euro like it's it's not that there aren't other right. cultures that have like you know like burial rituals and things to do with human remains and that kind of thing mm-hmm. but i just think of like the Catholic church and the idea of like, of um, like human remains of oh, like, sure. saints like our, and, um, relics. Yes. Relics. Exactly. So like both good and bad. Right. So like relics of like the people who talk to God. And then there's the relics of the people who were like, you know, like people want proof that right. this person is dead kind of mm-hmm. thing, um, which is just so strange. And it just goes to show that we're, you know, dark people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just biologically. We just want to, I'm going to mess with those dead bodies. It's not great. Yeah. So, you know, Nat was executed and the Commonwealth of Virginia later executed an additional 56 enslaved people who were accused of being part of the rebellion. Oh, and Um, weren't even proven. Yeah. yeah. So many black people who had not participated were also persecuted in the frenzy. Mm. Because Turner had been educated and literate as well as a popular preacher, state legislatures subsequently passed new laws prohibiting education of enslaved people and free black people restricted rights of assembly and other civil liberties for free black people and required white ministers to be present at all black worship services my god so this is and i I, this is going to sound like a glib example but like remember how like one guy tried to bomb an airplane with something in his shoe and now we all have to take our shoes off at the airport. It's kind of like this. So like one event happened and then they use this as an excuse to basically. Yeah. Dehumanize an entire population that has uh, already been systematically dehumanized. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And also like it was never going to, it was never going to work. You know what I mean? (sighs) Like people find a way to educate themselves and, and, you know, gather in groups. They just made it so much more difficult and like illegal for people to do things that. That everyone has the right to do. Yeah, everyone had the right to do. So. Yeah, exactly. That's why this was an important event in American history. So. Yeah, I can see that. The National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. was gifted Nat Turner's Bible in 2012. And we do know that oh, wow. this was his Bible. Um, mm. And there's a really interesting story behind it. I'll link to that, um, too, with uh, in the in the notes for the show. Um, it's a pretty cool story. Um, also, notably, in 2016, um, there was a film released called The Birth of a Nation, which was a period, oh, yeah. a period drama film. It was actually based on the story of Nat Turner and stars Nate Parker as Nat Turner. So mm-hmm. he kind of took the title of like D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation that was very like yeah. 
Ku Klux Klan um, <laughs> and and turned that around and took it to make it for the story of Nat Turner. So he is a very yeah. important figure in in Black history for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, and our last our last rebellion, Lauren. Um, <laughs> we're going to Harper's Ferry. Oh yeah! All right, all right, all right. So this is John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, mm-hmm. and uh, this is October sixteenth to the eighteenth, eighteen fifty-nine. It's essentially an effort by abolitionist John Brown to initiate a revolt of enslaved people in the Southern states by taking over the U.S. arsenal at Harper's Ferry, Virginia. Um, since eighteen sixty-three, that's actually been the state of West Virginia, but back mm-hmm. then it was just Virginia. So John Brown, he's He's a character. Okay. I, mean, I got to say. Fuck him up, John Brown. Fuck him he, up. Have you seen a photo <laughs> of this man? He has white yeah. hair sticking straight out of his skull. Yeah. Um, so it's, all his, it's all his smarts and his ideas <laughs> yeah. coming out of there. Oh, my God. So John Brown, <laughs> um, he had plans for a major attack on American slavery that began long before this raid in 1859. According to his wife, Mary, quote, he had been waiting 20 years for some opportunity to free the enslaved. Uh, we's been waiting all with him the proper time that he would put his resolve into action. So uh, Brown was a man with strong religious convictions who believed that he was an instrument of God to strike the death blow to slavery. Um, mm-hmm. He believed violence was necessary to end American slavery since decades of peaceful efforts had failed. Sure. Um, Brown, he was born in the year 1800. He first gained national attention when he led anti-slavery volunteers and his own sons during the bleeding Kansas crisis of the late 1850s. So this was a state level civil war over whether Kansas would enter the Union as a as a state that allowed slavery or as a Mm -hmm. free state. In May 1856, Brown and his sons killed five supporters of slavery in the Pottawatomie Massacre, which was a response to the sacking of Lawrence, Kansas by pro-slavery forces. So you can Mm -hmm. learn like all about this anytime you want to you want to anytime uh, bleeding Kansas comes up. This is this is what that was that what that was all about so in the words of abolitionist frederick Douglass, um you know this this potawatomi massacre was quote a terrible remedy for a terrible malady yeah um speaking of frederick Douglass, um john brown did discuss his plans at length with frederick Douglass, trying unsuccessfully to persuade Douglass to accompany him to harper's ferry um oh, wow. Douglass thought this was a suicide mission that could sure. not succeed why Harper's Ferry? Like, why not? Yeah. Why aren't we like talking about like, why don't we do a thing on the on the capital of the states or something like that? Yeah. So Harper's Ferry was the second federal armory that was created by the U.S. government. Um, it was hmm. both an arsenal for manufacturing firearms and an armory, which was a storehouse for firearms. Okay. Um, this armory, it was a long, narrow complex of buildings. It was located alongside the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad line on a strip of land alongside the Potomac River. The entrance was close to the center of town. Uh, there was a train station and hotels, a bridge, the B&O Railroad Potomac River Crossing. And at its peak, just before the Civil War, the armory had about 400 employees. Oh, um, wow. On the night of Sunday, October 16th, 1859, John Brown and 21 men marched on Harper's Ferry. Their plan was to capture the armory, weapons, and escape before a word could be sent to Washington. They cut the telegraph lines to prevent Ooh. communication in either direction. They also rounded up hostages from nearby farms, including Colonel Lewis Washington, who was the great-grandnephew of uh, our boy, 
President George Washington. George Washington. Yep. Uh-oh. So, uh, so John Brown and his men, they split up. They stationed a few of them at the bridges into the town. Um, mm-hmm. They got the keys from the night watchman at the armory. And in the early morning hours of October 17th, Brown then detained a passenger train at the train station for several hours. He did let the passengers off. He was okay. like, well, you guys are fine. And after a few hours, he just sent the train crew on their way. And by morning, okay. Brown's men had taken about 10 armory employees hostage in the engine house, and they held the other employees in a separate building. So Brown was sure that support from enslaved people would be on its way, but those enforcements never arrived. And Uh-oh. Brown waited like just a bit too long for them. So again, mm. like I mentioned, like his plan was like, get in there, steal all the weapons yep. and escape before anybody knows. Okay. But like, uh, he just th- hung that out. didn't happen. Yes. So as it became known that citizens had been taken hostage by an armed group, uh, military companies from neighboring towns began to arrive late that Monday, the 17th. And by noon, hopes of escape were gone. Uh, John Brown's men had lost control of the bridges leading out of town, which because of the terrain were the only practical escape routes. Like it's alongside the river. There's a big drop. There's a big gorge. Um, yeah. And the militia companies forced the insurgents to abandon their positions. Since escape was impossible, they fortified themselves in the most defensible building in the armory, which was the fire engine house, which would be later known as John Brown's Fort. So mm. Brown's men, they blocked the few windows, they used the fire engines and the hose cart to block the heavy doors, and they reinforced the doors with rope. Uh, they made some small holes on the walls and through them traded sporadic on fire with the surrounding militia. Um, oh between 2 and 3 p.m. that day, there was a great deal of firing. But late that afternoon, President Buchanan called out a detachment of U.S. Marines from the Washington Navy Yard. They were the only federal troops in the immediate area. And Buchanan also ordered Brevet Colonel Robert E. Lee conveniently on leave at his home just across the Potomac in Arlington, Virginia. Um, And he arrived on a special train there around 10 p.m. So around 6.30 a.m. on Tuesday, October 18th, Lee began the attack on the engine house. Lieutenant hmm. Jeb Stewart, these are all names you should know, re, yeah. in re-Civil War. Um, so Lieutenant Jeb Stewart walked toward the front of the engine house where he told John Brown that his men would be spared if they surrendered. Brown refused. And sure. as Jeb Stewart walked away, he made a prearranged signal. He waved his hat to Lieutenant Israel Green and his men standing nearby. Green's men then tried to break in using sledgehammers. Um, that didn't work. And then they found a ladder nearby and about 12 Marines used this ladder as a battering ram to break down the doors. So that oh did work. God. Um, Israel Green was first through the door. He singled out John Brown because everybody knew who John Brown was. Oh, sure. Yeah. That point. Um, he struck John Brown in the neck and the chest with a saber but he did not mortally wound him uh the hostages were freed and the assault was over it lasted three minutes the like like they took them in three minutes so five people in addition to several reporters like immediately came to harbors ferry to interview john brown he was interviewed Mm -hmm. at length as they lay as he lay there for more than 24 hours he'd been without food and sleep for over 48 hours he was hastily processed by the legal system and charged by a grand jury with treason against the commonwealth of virginia as well as Mm -hmm. murder and inciting a slave insurrection. Um, A jury found him guilty of all charges and he was sentenced to death on November 2nd. And after a legally required delay of 30 days, he was hanged on December 2nd. So uh, this execution was witnessed by both the poet Walt Whitman and the actor John Wilkes Booth. Are you serious? No. How big was our country at this point? Were there like 
12 people. Right. Like, <laughs> so here's the thing. Like John Brown, like at the time of his execution, he was actually the most famous living American. Oh, because yeah. I bet. of, you know, he had all his views out there. He was, mm-hmm. he was this big abolitionist. He was he loved a grand gesture. Um, yeah. People knew who he was because of Bleeding Kansas, mm-hmm, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So like the North saw him basically as an emblem and the South saw him as a madman. Um, yeah. And his trial was the first in which there was national newspaper coverage using the still new telegraph reporters and sketch artists were sent to cover the trial and newspapers and magazines carried like a ton of articles about it so his like sketches of him everything about this was like in all the papers and this like like the hanging was a huge deal yeah huge international news absolutely wild absolutely so altogether in this event, John Brown's men killed four people and wounded nine. Um, ten of Brown's men were killed, including his sons, Watson and Oliver. Five escaped, including his son, Owen. Seven were captured along with Brown, who were all quickly tried and hanged two weeks after John Brown. Do you know where John Brown is buried? Uh, I don't, because something about John Brown's body, if I remember yeah. correctly, like no one knows where his body went right. or something so like here's that. The yeah. Thing. <laughs> John Brown, we know where he is. John Brown is buried oh, okay. on his family farm near Lake Placid, New York. What? And it's maintained as the New York John Brown Farm State Historic Site. Um, huh. His son Watson is also buried there. And the bones of his son Oliver and nine other raiders are buried in a single coffin. Um, so, yeah, John Brown's body. I didn't I didn't write down a lot of notes about this. But um, so, again, this was like a very famous thing that happened. Like all these mm-hmm. people knew what was going on. Um, and there were something like somebody wanted to have him cremated in the state of Virginia where he's hanged, but cremation was illegal in Virginia. And also like his wife didn't want that to happen. So instead she had him like, you know, uh, packed in ice on a train, like the very same passenger train that he had, that he he had held up because it was like the one train going out of town, you know? Yeah. Um, So that train went to like DC and then went to Philadelphia and people were like, like, you should give it on a tour. We should be allowed to see it. Like, he's, you know, look at what he was trying to do for the, you know, for the union and this and that. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, yeah, so there were, like you mentioned, there were songs written about it. There were, you know, mm-hmm. and so a lot of people were were saying, like, you know, he should, you know, he should be treated as this, you know, high figure and, you know, you mm-hmm. shouldn't just bury him somewhere. So, yeah, that was I want to look something. at him. Yeah, I want to <laughs> see that. So, yeah, there you have it. That's five rebellious events from early American wow. history. Amazing. Distilled for you, as you will. I, knew a, I feel like I knew a little bit about each of them, yeah. but you really fleshed them out. Yeah, for me. it's Thank probably been you, since like ninth, ninth or 10th grade that a lot Easily. of us have heard some of these things. Like you learn Easily. them once. Um, but yeah, you know, lots of stuff about you know, taxation and, you know. Sure. <laughs> How ethical it is to enslave people and, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> things like that. Turns um, out not at all. <laughs> right. So those were five rebellious events from early American history. Wonderful. Thank you, Joel. So our quiz is called dot, dot, dot with a cause. This is a quiz on modern day charitable organizations. That's very good. Thank you. Question one. Humanitarian and nurse Clara Barton established the American branch of which international organization following a post-Civil War trip to Switzerland? 
question two, the origins of which nonprofit reproductive healthcare organization began in Brooklyn, New York in 1916 when Margaret Sanger opened the first birth control clinic. She and two other women were arrested and jailed for violating provisions of the Comstock Act, but Sanger later organized the clinic as the American Birth Control League. Question three. Habitat for Humanity, the world's largest not-for-profit builder, was founded in 1976 by Millard and Linda Fuller and is headquartered in Georgia. Aptly, name the famous former inhabitants of another large house who have been dedicated Habitat volunteers for more than 35 years. That's no small peanuts and whose annual work project has helped nearly 4,400 families move into safe, affordable shelter in 14 countries. Question four. True or false, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, a facility focused on children's catastrophic diseases, does not charge patients for their care. Question five. The origins of the Boys and Girls Clubs of America started in 1860 with three women in Hartford, Connecticut, who believed that, quote, boys who roam the street should have a positive alternative. The National Organization of Affiliated Clubs was formed in 1906, and 50 years later, it received a U.S. Congressional Charter. My question to you, <clears throat> my question to you, when did the and girls get added to the organization's name? Is it A, 1907, B, 1955, or C, 1990? Question six. While it sounds a bit like a fund to which George Costanza would have contributed, which organization with a yellow equals sign on a blue background is actually the largest LGBTQ advocacy group in the U.S.? Question seven. With roots in the research-focused Ecological Society of America, which global organization, abbreviated TNC, is the largest environmental nonprofit in the U.S.? Question eight. The Special Olympics, the world's largest sports organization for children and adults with intellectual and physical disabilities, was established in the 1960s by which sister of former U.S. President John F. Kennedy? Question 9. Make sure your Kleenex is handy. For what nonprofit organization's television advertisements did Canadian singer Sarah McLaughlin slowly croon the song Angel in 2007? And finally, question 10. Which service branch reserve force of the U.S. Armed Forces runs the Toys for Tots program, distributing millions of new toys to children every year at Christmas? I'll give you a minute to think about it and be back with your answers.
This is a very good quiz. I'm hoping I got most of them right. Thank you. Considering I've been working in nonprofits for the better part of 15 years. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right. Question one. Humanitarian and nurse Clara Barton established the American branch of which international organization following a post-Civil War trip to Switzerland? Uh, Is this the Red Cross? It is the Red Cross. The American Red Cross, specifically. Mm -hmm. So uh, Clarissa Harlow Barton was born in 1821 in Massachusetts. She had a very varied career as a teacher, then a principal, then a clerk in the U.S. Patent Office. Then she switched gears back toward nursing and humanitarianism during the Civil War. She ran the Office of Missing Soldiers after the war, and she made it her goal to find, identify, and bury 13,000 individuals who died in the Andersonville POW camp in Georgia. Yeah, she was amazing. She toured the country giving lectures um, where she made the acquaintance of both Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass, of course, who didn't know them, right? Like you said, how many people were there in America? Um, (laughs) Exactly. So in 1869, Clara traveled to Europe and in Switzerland, she was introduced to the International Committee of the Red Cross. She brought that idea back to the US um, and like had to like fight a couple presidents to like make it happen. But anyway. um, Always have to. Yeah, so... She became president of the American branch of the Red Cross, which held its first official meeting at her Washington, D.C. apartment in May 1881. The first local society was founded in August 1881 in Dansville, Livingston County, New York, where she maintained a country home. In Dansville? The first (laughs) local branch of the Red Cross was in Dansville, New York. Wow. There is, and you know what? Can I tell you something? There's nothing in Dansville. <laughs> wow. She had a country home there. Something I mean, was in Dansville. She probably had a lot of cheap land because, again, <laughs> not a lot in Dansville, even now. So, I mean, God bless her. Yeah, right. So, the Red Cross, it basically, it grew from helping wounded soldiers to also mm-hmm. include a plethora of services like blood and plasma donation, tissue services, training services like CPR and AED, along with lots of national and international disaster relief. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. Claire Barton, Claire Barton. Bless her. All right. Question two. The origins of which nonprofit reproductive healthcare organization began in Brooklyn, New York in 1916 when Margaret Sanger opened the first birth control clinic? Is this Planned Parenthood? It is Planned Parenthood. So yes, um, she and her, she and her, her friends um, later organized the clinic as the American Birth Control League and it essentially changed its name to Planned Parenthood Federation of America in 1942. So this organization directly provides a variety of reproductive health services and sexual education, contributes to research in reproductive technology, and advocates for the protection and expansion of reproductive rights. Uh, Planned Parenthood is the largest single provider of reproductive health services in the U.S. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, question three. Habitat for Humanity, the world's largest not-for-profit builder, was founded in 1976 by Millard and Linda Fuller and is headquartered in Georgia. Aptly named the famous former inhabitants of another large house who have been dedicated habitat volunteers for more than 35 years. That's no small peanuts and whose annual work project has helped nearly 4,400 families move into safe, affordable shelter in 14 countries. Um, this is the Carters, not Beyonce and Jay Z, but, but Jimmy, but Jimmy Carter and his wife, whose name escapes me in the in the moment. But I will give it to you, Mister. Okay, Carter, you. Jimmy and Rosalind Carter. Rosalind, that's yeah. It. 
Okay, so their their 2020 and 2021 projects were postponed due to the pandemic, but in 2019, the Jimmy and Rosalind Carter work project took place in Nashville, Tennessee, where 21 families worked to build homes alongside hundreds of other volunteers. Jimmy was 94 years old, actually building houses, and there are days that I don't feel like putting my laundry away until I need the laundry basket again. Yeah. Um, And as of this recording... Bless him. Jimmy is 97 years old and Rosalind oh is a God. spry 94. And they are still like just, they They're are incredible. just the most sweet, humble, lovely, lovely just people. Most giving, generous people. They have spent their entire lives just doing things for other people. And like, I mean, d- aren't they trying to like eradicate it or like have eradicated like some sort of like, worm like there's some sort of like parasitic worm like they probably volunteered to like test it on themselves or whatever first because they're such and we were so mean to jim they were so mean to jimmy carter in the 70s and 80s okay yeah it would undeserved (laughs) they made him sell his farm i know poor man he just wanted to grow peanuts Anyway, they're doing a great job with Habitat. We love you, Jimmy and, and Rob. Yeah, <laughs> Jimmy, call us. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're just doing a great job with Habitat. And they really are. Their work project is still going strong. And bless Ugh, them. They're so great. Yeah. All right, Lauren. And I mean, get the Kleenex out for this too. Uh, oh question four, true or false? The St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, a facility focused on children's catastrophic diseases, does not charge patients for their care. That is true. They do not charge patients. They do for their not. Care. They do That's not charge amazing. patients for their care. Yes. I was crying while writing this question, guys, oh by the God. way. So we'll just see if I can make it through. So St. Jude's, it's located in Memphis, Tennessee. It was established in 1962. They treat infants, children, teenagers, and young adults up to age 25. Um, St. Jude's was founded by entertainer Danny Thomas on the premise yes. that no child should die in the dawn of life. Mm-hmm. All medically eligible patients who are accepted for treatment at St. Jude are treated with without regard to the family's ability to pay. And St. Jude is one of a few pediatric research organizations in the U.S. where families never pay for treatments that are covered by insurance and families without insurance are never asked to pay. Mm -hmm. So discoveries at St. Jude have profoundly changed how doctors treat children with cancer and other catastrophic illnesses. Um, Since St. Jude was established, the survival rate for acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is the most common type of childhood cancer, their survival rate has increased from 4% in 1962 to 94% today. Whoa. Oh during my this God. T- yeah. During this time, the overall survival rate for childhood cancers has risen from 20% to 80%. Oh my God. Yeah. It's. That's incredible. It's incredible. Oh my gosh. Um, so the hospital's operating costs can run close to $2.4 million per day. <gasps> um, and aside from government grants and insurance recoveries, the primary source of funding comes from the American Lebanese Syrian Associated Charities. That's A-L-S-A-C, ALSAC. They are the largest healthcare-related charity in the U.S. So they are specifically wow. affiliated with um, with St. Jude, and they're, they're kind of like the fundraising um, wing of St. Jude. That's amazing. Yeah, right. Danny Thomas's daughter, Marlo Thomas, Marlo Thomas, also known as that girl. She's you that see girl. her in the, yeah. the commercials. Yeah. She she still, you know, is takes on her father's legacy and yeah. and you know, does a lot of work with St. Jude and does a lot of fundraising. That's amazing. It's amazing. All right, question five. 
The origins of the Boys and Girls Clubs of America started in 1860 with three women in Hartford, Connecticut, who believed that boys who roamed the street should have a positive alternative. The National Organization of Affiliated Clubs was formed in 1906, and 50 years later, it received a U.S. congressional charter. But my question to you, when did the and girls get added to the organization's name? Was it A, 1907, B, 1955, or C, 1990? I, my first instinct was that it was like way too late. Like I, my first instinct is C, but I don't, I don't think it was that late. Although I'm, I may be horrified to learn that I'm right, but I'm, I'm gonna go with B. Taking a victory sip of wine. What did we say about your first instinct, man? Oh no, was it really 1990? The answer is C, <gasps> 1990. Are you? That's so late. Me. That's so late. So, you know, their site mentions, quote, to recognize the fact that girls are a part of our cause, the national yeah. organization's name was changed to Boys and Girls Clubs of America in 1990. Um, so in case you're not familiar with it, the Boys and Girls Clubs of America provides voluntary after school programs serving more than four million young people at more than 4,000 locations across the U.S., Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. Um, and on their website, it's very Sweet. They have like a list of like notable members. Um, They've included Denzel Washington, Jennifer Lopez, Shaquille O'Neal, Usher, Katy Perry, Misty Copeland, and Adam Sandler. So, you know, you know, a wide variety of very famous folks. I have heard that Adam Sandler is an extraordinarily like generous and philanthropic person. So I believe it. That's great. Yeah. Um, and following the success of Black Panther, the film, in 2018, mm. Disney donated $1 million to Boys and Girls Clubs of America to de- help develop their STEM programs for like after school stuff. So that's, yeah. you know, so that's, that's nice great too. That was a little, little fun thing. All right. Question six. While it sounds a bit like a fund to which George Costanza would have contributed, which organization with a yellow equals sign on a blue background is actually the largest LGBTQ advocacy group in the U.S.? I mean, all all I can think of is the People Fund. So I want to say like the the people org or something like that. The the personhood org, the people org, I guess. Well, the the fund was the human fund. Is that, oh, the human fund. Does so that maybe do anything? The human league. <laughs> that's the name Is of that the a band. band. That's a band. I think that's a new wave band. <laughs> yeah, that's a new wave band. This that's is on me. the human rights campaign. Oh, of course. I didn't realize that was LGBTQ. That's interesting. So, you know, uh, HRC, they're an umbrella group, which includes the HRC Foundation, which is a 501c3 organization that focuses on research, advocacy, and education. The Human Rights Campaign is a 501c4 that focuses on promoting LGBTQ rights through lobbying of Congress and state and local offices, as well as mobilizing grassroots campaigns. And HRC uses the term equality flag for flags that bear their logo. So it's it's just pretty Mm. famously like a bright, you know, a nice pretty blue back dark blue background with a yellow equal sign on it so mm-hmm. yeah it's, all right it's cool all right question seven with roots in the research focused ecological society of america which global organization abbreviated tnc is the largest environmental nonprofit in the u.s now this just hit me in the middle of trying to figure out the human fund uh-huh. or i'm sorry the human rights campaign <laughs> um 
Is it the Nature Conservancy? You got it. Yes. Yeah. So their mission is to conserve the lands and waters on which all life depends by boldly addressing the biodiversity and climate crises over the next decade. Um, They've also expanded international conservation efforts, including work not only in North America and Central America, but South America, Africa, the Pacific Rim, the Caribbean, and Asia. And their website is really cool. They have a lot of really great like stories and um, projects that they've worked on and, you know, showing these things and these lands that they've saved and maybe Mm -hmm. purchased and a lot of things that they have, um, you know, helped to save things from deforestation and help to, you know, save land from being totally ruined by industrial uh, waste and things like that. And so they're doing a really, really important job too. All right, question eight. The Special Olympics, the world's largest sports organization for children and adults with intellectual and physical disabilities, was established in the 1960s by which sister of former U.S. President John F. Kennedy? And I need a first name on this. Okay. Um, I am... Yeah, I can't just say Kennedy. Damn. Um, um, I am very muddled on the Kennedy generations. Mm-hmm. So I'm... This is a shot in the dark. So I'm going to say Caroline... That is not right. Um, the answer is Eunice Kennedy Shriver. Oh, yes. Oh, She's okay. a Shriver. Maria Shriver's mm. mom. So, um, and I've, and I started to write notes about doing an episode on the Kennedy women. So I'm, I'm that, that might happen later That'd be this good. year. Um, yeah. So the Kennedy family had long kept secret the disabilities of their sister, Rosemary. So yes. you might have known about this. Rosemary was born with some intellectual disabilities in 1918. And then she was given a frontal lobotomy in 1941. Yes. That like nightmarish. That, that yeah, there was that was a bad outcome Ugh. there. So Eunice wrote an article in the Saturday Evening Post in 1962, which directly addressed the fear and misunderstanding that surrounded intellectual disabilities at the time. So, you know, her her brother John he's in he's in the office of the presidency at this point in yeah time. so this Frank article about the president's family was actually kind of seen as a watershed in changing public yeah. attitudes toward people with intellectual disabilities so um, Eunice used the renown that came with being the president's sister to speak openly and hopefully about the subject in 1963 she started at a day camp called Camp Shriver at her home in Potomac Maryland um, she wanted to address the concern that children with disabilities had little opportunity to participate in organized athletic events um, mm-hmm. so so they did hold, um, you know, the first the first Special Olympics um, big games actually happened in 1968. And the Special Olympics logo, I don't know if you can picture this. So it's actually based on the sculpture called Joy and Happiness to All the Children of the World. It was by Soviet artist Zurab Saratelli, and it was a gift to SUNY Brockport when what? the university hosted the Special Olympics in 1979. So what? In 1979, SUNY Brockport hosted the Special Olympics and then they were given this like very special like fountain sculpture by a Soviet artist and they have since taken that sculpture and made that be the whole logo of the Special Olympics. So you okay. can visit that sculpture next to the Drake Memorial Library on campus at SUNY Brockport. By the way, everybody listening, if you're not familiar with the Rochester area, SUNY Brockport is literally like 20 minutes away from us right, right. now. Like, Julie and I could hop in the car and go see this <laughs> we thing go see this right, now. right now. Yeah. What? What? <laughs> I couldn't believe that when I read it. That's so weird. Uh, First Dansville and now SUNY Brockport? What's happening? Like Placid? What the hell? (laughs) It's 
history is crazy. It's everywhere. All right. right. Question nine. Make sure your Kleenex is handy. For what nonprofit organization's television advertisements did Canadian singer Sarah McLachlan slowly croon the song Angel in 2007? Um, This is the SPCA. It is the SPCA. Mm -hmm. This is the most successful fundraising effort for the Uh, American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. The commercial originally aired in 2007 and within the first two years of its release had raised more than $30 million for them. Um, so if you're not familiar, the ASPCA's mission is to provide effective means for the prevention of cruelty to animals throughout the United States. I guess it's pretty straightforward. Um, sure. But yeah, I mean, the commercial still airs and then they do like a Christmas version that she sings yes. Silent Night. Yeah. Very sad and very compelling. It's very sad. Um, yeah. But they're tugs at the heartstrings. Yeah, for real. Ugh. And finally, question 10, which service branch reserve force of the U.S. Armed Forces runs the Toys for Tots program, distributing millions of new toys to children every year at Christmas? I I could not I could not name you a single service branch in this moment <laughs> in my life right now. I could not say like the first thought I the first thing I thought of was the waves, which was definitely like the women's like naval end during world war two. Wow. So, so like, I know it's a deep cut. It's only because when I worked for the Jeanette collection, we had a waves uniform and it was very cute. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean all, the only thing I can think of was the Navy, honestly, but that's not a service branch. Obviously it's, it's the, Navy the Navy is a service branch. Okay. I'm just telling you that it is. How about the Navy? You did name a service branch. It's not the oh, correct I'm sorry. service was- branch, but you named one. Um, <laughs> See, I was thinking a service branch, like nonprofit end of no. a. Uh, okay, okay. No, the so Toys then for let's Tots go with is the is the organization. But oh, okay, let's go with um, let's go Army. <laughs> okay, the answer is the U.S. Marine Corps Reserve. Oh, okay. So Toys for Tots began in 1947 by a group of L.A. Marine reservists who coordinated and collected about 5,000 toys for local children. The Marines decided to use it as a PR and recruitment tool the following year because, of course, and there was a ton of celebrity support for this. Um, Walt Disney designed the first national Toys for Tots poster, including their now logo, which is like that little red toy train that says like Toys for Tots. Um, So, you know, there were like... Song like Nat King Cole recorded a song and like Peggy Lee recorded a song for them and they were like it was big it was a big big deal. Um, in 1991, the Secretary of Defense authorized the creation and affiliation with the nonprofit charity foundation. And in 1995, the Secretary of Defense approved Toys for Tots as an official mission of the Marine Corps Reserve. That's sweet. So okay. yeah, it's that's a nice little story. So that's sweet. Yeah. That was a great, great quiz. job, Lauren. Good job, Julia. Great quiz. Yay. Um, yay. That was awesome. And I'm looking forward to the Kennedy Women episode and now that, that may I've or may said not it, be incoming. I have to do it. It's like, do it you know, we kept saying I was going to do a Fleetwood Mac episode and then 100 episodes later, I finally did yeah. it. Um, <laughs> I mean, we make promises. Yeah. We, we make promises that we'll do it. We don't say when. We don't That's give true. ourselves deadlines. That's true. Again, you guys, it's a really, <laughs> it's a lot of work doing this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes we're just like, you know what? I'm just going to throw a pre-Raphaelite episode together and we're just going to call it a day. <laughs> what can I write about this week? How about magnets? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's so often that I sit in the living room and I look at Steve. And I'm like, what should I do for a topic this week? And he just stares in the middle distance for like mm. a minute and a half. And he always comes up with something sciencey where he's like, what about electromagnetism? And I'm like, no, <laughs> Steve, 
Read the room, Steve. Yeah, come on. I want to not do a lot of research. I don't want to have to teach (laughs) myself an entire field of study in order to, you know, churn out an hour of content. Enroll at RIT. Take intro (laughs) to magnetism. Exactly. Probably a course, right? Yeah. I mean, electromagnetic engineers are a thing, right? (laughs) I don't know. He's he's probably in the car, like shouting at his speakers. Anyway. Uh, well, thank you, Julia. This was great. Yay. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we uh, will catch you next time. Bye. Bye.